Jesus, we're here just to affirm really first to you who you are, so that in knowing you, suddenly all of our lives come falling into perspective. And so God, we, we name you Waymaker for the ways this week it felt like there was no way. We name you Promise Keeper for the ways that we are waiting on you. And where there was darkness, we are thankful that you are our light. Jesus, we have gathered in this place to be people of your presence and partners in your purposes. And so we pray that you would come, Holy Spirit, and move in and among and through us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. And welcome to Regen. Uh, Kids are going back with Miss Kayla. Off they go. Uh, My name is Kyle, and I get to be one of the pastors here, and I'm super thankful to have you in the house today. So if you are here for the first time, welcome. If you're back for the second or 202nd time, welcome back. Um, I wanted to mention two things before I introduce our speaker for this morning, and on we go. Well, first of all, I see a Jade Byler in the back, is what I see. A tiny little Jade Byler back there, so that's exciting. And uh, uh, it went live on Facebook this week, and I wanted to make sure you heard my voice about it. We are doing two Christmas candlelight gatherings this year, because we had 168 people in this room last year, and it was very uncomfortable. So there will be one at 4 p.m. and one at 7 p.m., one at 4 p.m. and one at 7 p.m., and there will be no 11.15 gathering that day. So we'll do two gatherings, 4 p.m. and 7 p.m., all that info's on Facebook. And let me make it clear what this is about right now. You have friends and, and family members in your circle, that you not your small group circle, but like the more general circle circle, um, that you have been having faith conversations with. And the message that night on Christmas Candlelight is intentionally built for people who are seeking and asking questions, Okay. And so this is not just a, yay, we get to sing our candles time. This is your missional opportunity to bring friends and family uh, along to hear about the way of Jesus that night. So that's what that's about. I I also wanted to tell you that um, we had a really awesome first round of what we called the preaching cohort. So 10 people in our community came forward uh, to learn how to preach and teach God's word, which I think is great. And nearing the end, we realized that we aren't quite all the way there yet. So we're going to be offering a second preaching cohort in the spring. And so if you have any interest in learning how to study the Bible better or teach the Bible, preaching cohorts for you. So you'll hear about that after the first of the year in the reconnect. But I wanted to let you know, I'm really proud of the 10 people pressing in and doing something. Um, Somebody said to me, this was rewarding. They said, this is really hard. How do you do this every week? I said, thank you for noticing. Um, it's great. So I, I appreciate that was a good side benefit. Um, so here's where we're in this series called In All Her Glory that is about women in scripture and how I want us as a church, as a spiritual family, to come into contact with, explore the radical freedom Jesus gives women to lead in his kingdom movement. The radical freedom Jesus gives women to lead in his kingdom movement. My ultimate hope in this series is that there would be, in our congregation, I know there is, in our spiritual family, there are women holding themselves back. And I want them to learn how to run through this series. And I want the men in our church to see the value of partnership, men and women together. And so 
uh, when we started putting this series together, I said to Steph, I don't just want a man's voice teaching on women. That would be weird. And so we knew that we needed to get Dr. Pam McRae from Moody Bible Institute out here. And some of you have met Bob and Pam in our marriage conferences that we've done in the last two years. They led those. And so I asked uh, Pam to come. I first met Pam in 2007 on a Monday morning, my first day of class at Moody in um, my spiritual life and community class and developed a really great friendship with her and her husband Bob over our four years at Moody. They did our premarital counseling and have just been really good friends. A couple weeks ago, I told the story about after our third miscarriage, how we went running to Michigan to spend some time with them and how they and the Lord put us back together. And so I'm just really excited for you to hear from Pam today. Um, I heard her message once and I'm excited to hear it again because there's all of these other places that I want to fill in my notes. Um, so would you give, by the way, just, I won't name names, but there are one, two, three, four, like five Moody Bible Institute graduates in the room. So it's gotten very real uh, today. So be careful or else um, the archers will come for you. And uh, so uh, everybody, can we just give like a big regen welcome to Dr. Pam McCray? Yes. to know where the Moody Bible Institute people are so I can <laughs> appropriately nod to you at certain times. But um, I'm very happy to be here. I feel like, um, you know, this is, uh, like Kyle said, this is the third time that um, we have been in this space and um, teaching, and so I'm delighted to be here. Um, we love spending time with Kyle and Steph and Jack now. And so um, it's always a pleasure when the Lord sets things up and we get to be together again. So I'm, I'm really grateful. And I um, look around, and actually since we've been here a couple times, I feel like I know some of you. Like I, I, I identify that we have, we have talked together in the past, so it's good to be here. Um, so um, I am happy to be here to talk about this topic in this series that Kyle has um, initiated for your church in all her glory. And so as I begin this morning, um, let's pray together and ask God to help us. Father, I thank you that you have brought us together today, and I thank you um, for this series um, and chance to look uh, at what you have done and are doing through um, the women um, you have called and chosen as your own. And I pray that as we talk today about how the church functions together, that you would have your Holy Spirit work among us and in us and to teach us as he is our teacher. He is the one that illumines our minds and reveals to us truth from your word. And we trust that today. In the name of Jesus, amen. So in August of this year, um, a video was released on YouTube, and I commend it to you and recommend that you go and watch this video. It is called Sheep Among Wolves, and um, I had a friend that told me about this and said, here's a documentary that, that you need to watch, and so I watched it, and what it is is a documentary about the fastest growing church in the world. And I was very interested. 
So it started to watch this video, and the first thing that they tell you is, this is a story about the church in Iran. It's the fastest growing church in the world, and it is a revival that is being led through women. And so as I watched it, it described um, the women in Iran, and we probably have a picture in our head of women in that culture who are covered. And um, so what happens in that society, we know women are oppressed, women are kept behind closed doors, there is a lot of oppression that goes on, there are women who are sexually abused, who are verbally abused, who are raped, who are prostituting themselves, who are exploited in many different ways. But when women in Iran hear about Jesus, they are flocking to him and are accepting Jesus as their Savior. And the Spirit is revealing Jesus to them in many different ways. They know nothing of equal rights or personal justice issues. They live lives that are full of grace and gentleness, mercy, and thankfulness. And it takes great courage for them to share the gospel. But out of the depth of their pain comes a strength where they go from the strength that they need to just live in the kind of oppression that they face daily. And they transfer that and they recognize Jesus and they live full out for them, for him. Um, In Iran, women are free to speak in the church. The church there is not an organized um, group. It's, they don't have church buildings. It is a decentralized movement where people are meeting in houses, are meeting in small groups, and the church is growing like wildfire there. Women don't need permission to talk about the Lord. They take what they know, and they tell everyone, young and old, and they are leading the most powerful resistance movement on the earth against oppression. So many have mental problems, have psychological problems, are suffering from poverty, but yet they come and when they find Jesus, they are, they are described as being fierce against the enemy. They um, are described as women who are submissive to their husbands, submissive to the structures in which they live, submissive to the societal issues that they face, but it, when it comes to Satan, they are fierce. So God is moving. There are women who are teaching, evangelizing. They are described as being apostles in nature. (laughs) How's that for edit? Um, Prophetic and thousands are turning to Christ. This is the kind of revival that we long for, isn't it? And if we would think about God doing this in our country, that there would be this amazing movement that would be um, producing um, um, people who are running after Jesus and turning to Jesus thousands a day, as described in this documentary, who would we think would be the ones that would be leading that movement? Would we think that that kind of revival would be coming through women? Could that happen here? I've heard it said that women um, are often at the forefront of many revivals 
And recently I heard a message in our chapel um, at Moody where um, we were listening to one of our former presidents, Dr. George Sweeting, who was the president when Bob and I were students at Moody. And he was preaching as a man who was saying, I want to show you what it looks like to be faithful to the end. He's 95 years old. And he got up and he said, as I look across the world at what God is doing, he said, I believe revival is going to come to America. He says, but I believe it's going to come through women. Women teaching and preaching the gospel. And he said, um, he said, it's typically in churches, women who are the ones that are gathering every week to study God's word in depth and are doing this in churches all over America. So, I think that we need to listen about how God is using women and what God might be doing through women. The role of women in gospel ministry is what your current series is about. You've been looking at passages of scriptures and stories of women in the Bible to consider again what God means for women in the church. So we want to take a fresh look at a passage this morning to see if there's something else we can learn from this passage. Understanding scripture is hard work, isn't it? Interpretive work, as Kyle has just said, some of you are studying how to do good hermeneutical interpretive work, and it's not easy. I heard a theologian say recently that interpretive work isn't always a struggle to understand truth, but very often we go to Scripture to understand power. We look at passages and we search the scripture and often we look to see what can I know about what God is saying and if we misuse it, we can take what scripture says and use it more as a sledgehammer for people than really as a message of God's word, his gospel, his love, and his truth. So we go to scripture and we need to struggle with the text and say, what does it mean? What does God want us to do here? Do we do that or do we try to learn something um, again so that we can use it in a way that keeps going a message that we've had in our head or a message that we've been taught our whole lives? We believe that the Bible holds the truth from God and it tells us what to do. It is inspired. It is the very word of God. It is authoritative. It tells us what to do from God, and he is the authority that we submit to. He's the one that gets to tell us what to do, how to do it. It is infallible. It's true. It is inerrant. It is without error. We are able to understand it. As I prayed, we acknowledge that he's given us the Holy Spirit, so when we look into his word, we can hear from the Spirit to know what it says and what it means. It's easy to be understood by a little child, and it is, um, we have the help to understand it our whole life. I don't know about you, but I came to faith as a four-year-old. What did I know of the depths of the doctrine of salvation at that point? Almost nothing. There have been times when I've been tempted to go back and think, maybe I really didn't know what I was doing, and maybe that wasn't the point of my salvation. 
And I remember wrestling with that, particularly as I was a student at Moody and I was learning more about the doctrines of the faith. And I thought, I certainly, if I couldn't have understood it, how could I have ever been able to make a decision as a four-year-old that would have meant that would have been my point of salvation? And the Spirit came in, and, and I, I, I just felt as though the Spirit was saying to me, so you think that you part of your salvation is because you know so much? Or you understand it? Or it was because in that moment, as much as you knew, you responded to as much as you knew. And the Spirit brought that that was the point of your salvation. How much do we need to know? Well, I knew enough. So God um, lets us be affirmed to know that we are able to understand Scripture. And it is sufficient to everything that we need in life. There is power in the Word of God. Isaiah 40 and verse 8 says, The Word of God stands forever. In Matthew 5, verse 18, it says, Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. From the beginning when it was written until the very end when the culmination of the whole world comes together to worship God and we are, we are done with this world as we know it and we are in our eternal state, the word of God will not change. In James verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, um, James says, don't merely listen to the word and deceive yourself, but you have to do what it says. And so when we come to scripture, you look at scripture and we say, this is what it says. And therefore, regardless of what it says, I don't get to say, I don't like it and say, I'm not going to do it. You get to look at scripture and under the authority of scripture, by the power of the spirit, we say, yes, sir. We say yes to the Lord. We will do whatever you say. This is what we believe. Sometimes we want to try and say, well, it doesn't really fit what we want. Or we look at a passage and we say, I don't really like what it says. And so therefore, oh, if I can't understand it, then I really don't have to do it until I understand it. It can't mean what it really says. Have you ever tried to go to Scripture and you read something and you decide you're going to have an argument? Like, well, it doesn't really mean that. Have you ever done that? When was the last time you did that? Maybe like recently. You go to Scripture and you want to argue the text and you go, wait, I'm miserable. Can I get a divorce? Scripture says, who said you're supposed to be like abundantly happy in all things? Um, you look at the scripture and we're to honor our covenant. And um, so we don't, don't get to take passages and just say, I don't like what it says. I'm sure it doesn't mean that for me. One, ins- one theologian might interpret a text more restrictively. And we think about that particularly as it comes to issues related to women. And we think, oh. Well, if it's more restrictive than I like it, then they must be just a, misogy- a misogynist. But if someone looks at a text and in, um, interprets it more generously, we might be tempted to say, oh, they're just laying their cultural perspective or some political agenda over Scripture, and that's influencing how they're seeing the text. And then we're tempted to say, well, what's the next cultural, um, cultural move, and how is that going to influence our interpretation? What, what next could change? But doesn't the text objectively say something? And doesn't God want us to understand what he says? Should not it be clear? Not all texts are clear, but shouldn't we defer to God rather than assume that we know that we can just make it sound and say what we want it to say? Kyle said last week that he hopes this series helps you read the Bible like Paul and like Jesus so you understand the arc of the scripture. In other words, you see the big picture and then understand what God is saying overall as we go deep into Scripture and what it says specifically.
So we come to a text today that's really hard to understand, and we cannot massage it to suit our purposes. Affirming our foundational belief that this is God's word, and therefore it means something for our good and for his glory should make us careful students. In the past, the the text that we're going to look at this morning has been disregarded altogether, has been said it was inserted at a later date, and it's really not God's word. It has made people be angry at Paul. It has eliminated women from speaking at all in the church. And it has validated men silencing women in the church life. So, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 is a passage that is often described as one of the hard passages. And I agree with whoever described it that way. It's a hard passage. This is the passage where Paul famously says that he wants women to keep silent in the church. It has been argued about, misused, and ignored to the confusion of many. In the sermon last week, Kyle also said this, that his goal is to explore the radical freedom and authority Jesus gives women to lead in his kingdom movement in all her glory. So if we're going to talk about a verse that seems to say women are to be silent, how can that be? I'm going to give you some context of this verse and the verses in question that I want us to focus on today. But first, let me read those verses. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34. And we're going to jump right in, and then I will build the context in a moment. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34 says this. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. But they are to, be sub- they are to subject themselves Just as the law says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Seems pretty clear, doesn't it? I want to talk about the context of this verse and then look specifically at the verse. So if you will remember, 1 Corinthians was written to the church in Corinth that had a lot of problems. It was a young church, and so Paul was writing. He starts off in the first chapter to basically say, don't forget the resurrection. You people are forgetting the resurrection, going straight to the, straight to the ascension and acting as if, or the crucifixion. Don't, don't forget the crucifixion because um, you people are just only talking about the resurrection because the shame of the cross is something you don't like. And he starts off right on the bat saying, you know what, we've got to make sure you keep your doctrine straight. So as he goes forward, he's answering questions all along the way. And so he gets to chapter 11, and Paul says, I want women to pray, I want women and men to pray and prophesy in the church in this particular way. And he describes what is um, a way that they should dress so that they are respectful and so that they are being appropriate. So what he says to the men is when you pray or prophesy in the church, when, when the believers gather, 
um, men should not have their head covered. When women pray and prophesy, they should have their head covered. So in that chapter, he also goes on after that to reinforce that there should be this interdependence between men and women because men and women are to be together. They are not separate. They're to be together. In the next chapter, in chapter 12, Paul starts talking about spiritual gifts. And he says, in the church, all believers are giving gifts for the common good of the whole body. So all of you have a gift. Some of you may have more than one gift. But what your gift is, is for the whole body. So Paul is saying, the gifts that you are given, the Holy Spirit gives them according to how he wants to give them. Verse 18 says, but now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. So you don't get to, you don't get to choose your gift. Um, you may ask for a gift, but the Holy Spirit gives you a gift. And every single one in here should be using their gift for the body, for somebody in this church. Because what Paul says is when everybody works together, the church is built up. It becomes mature. It becomes who God wants it to be. And so he says everybody has a gift and everybody should use it. Well, apparently people weren't using their gifts well because then he moves right into chapter 13 and everybody knows um, if we think of 1 Corinthians 13, we usually say it's the love chapter. So right after spiritual gifts, Paul says, use these gifts in a way that love is the container because it's so important. And he talks about how to love one another. So then after he talks about that and talks about how we are to love one another, in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, pursue love yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. When was the last time you prayed that God would give you a spiritual gift to use in the body? Some gifts he gives you and you sort of recognize them or somebody else recognizes them as you use them in the body. But Paul says here, it's okay for us, and he tells us to pray that we would get certain gifts. So he says, but especially... It says, um, let me start at the first word again. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And so he says here, brothers and sisters, he's talking to the brethren, that we are to desire to prophesy. If you turn over to the end of the chapter in verse 39, Paul says again, therefore, my brethren, brothers and sisters, Desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in order. So Paul is talking here about three problems. He starts in this chapter by saying desire to prophesy. At the end he says desire to prophesy. And then in the middle he says there's some issues. And we need to talk about speaking in tongues. We need to talk about prophecy. And we need to talk about women. And so he begins there. There have always been prophets and prophetesses, both in the Old Testament and the New. So what does it mean to have, um, what does it mean to prophesy? How does Paul talk about 
prophecy in this chapter. If you look in verse 3 and 4, Paul says this, But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. In verse 19, he says that prophecy brings conviction, calls one to account, discloses the secrets of the heart, causes one to fall on their face in worship of God, and for ones in the congregation, when they hear prophecy, they declare that God is among them. This kind of speaking, as Paul says in verse 3, is for edification, exhortation, and consolation. So Paul says that all should earnestly desire this. Because we're not dealing with every part of this chapter, I'll give you the cliff notes about speaking in tongues. This is a confusing topic. And um, like I said, I'm not going to deal with it thoroughly. But what Paul says here is that if there are people who are speaking in a language in the church where it is not understood... He said there needs to be somebody to interpret that because the whole point, as he says over seven times in this chapter, is that the church would be edified. He's making clarifications about the order of the worship in this church, and his point is this needs to be done so the body is edified. This needs to be done so there's edification. This needs to be done so there's edification. So if they're speaking in tongues, there needs to be an interpreter because people need to hear a message that is is engaging in their mind. And he said he says if somebody um is playing an instrument or or playing a trumpet and nobody knows what it is, how would anybody know to go to battle if the trumpet did not have a sound that everybody knew that's what it was saying? And he says you don't want to have something going on in the service that nobody knows what anybody is saying. And he says in fact, if unbelievers come into the service and people are speaking in tongues and nobody knows what's going on, he says they're going to think y'all are crazy. And chaos is what he's speaking against. So, next he talks about prophecy, and he says, and so when you prophesy, and edification, encouragement, exhortation, when you're doing this, if someone has a word, then let that person speak. If somebody else starts to talk, the first one needs to sit down and be quiet and listen to the next one. And so in the process of this, Paul also says that for how can anybody say amen and affirm what's being said to um, a message that is given in a tongue if nobody knows what he's saying? You can't evaluate it. You can't determine that it's true and say amen, which is the way that in that group, in, in that church, people would say something and, and um, people would resp- other people would judge what was being said and say, yes, that's true. Someone would judge that prophecy. Someone would judge that tongue. And so Paul is saying here, when someone has a word for the congregation, for the edification of the body, um, that needs to be done in an orderly way so it's understood. There should be no interruptions, and um, there should be order. So then we come to this verse, women are to keep silent in the church. Not all theologians agree with what this says. In fact, rarely will you find theologians who agree. Interpretation is hard work. So, how can we understand this? I'm going to go 
clause by clause here and try to make a comment about each particular clause. The first one says women should keep silent and they're not permitted to speak. This is contrary to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 where he said, when you speak, do it this way. But people and theologians, church fathers and um, uh, teachers in the past have said that this actually means complete silence. Women are to be absolutely silent in the church. Tertullian and Aquinas, who are church fathers, believed that a woman's voice should not be heard in the church, not only in speaking, but also in singing. They should not even be making any sounds. There's also a, a thought that this relates to the speaking gifts which are in this chapter of speaking in tongues or speaking a prophecy and that's what women should not be involved in the next clause said they are to be they are to subject themselves to the law however there is no law in the torah that says anything about women being silent in this way so many believe that this could be a cultural adaptation of we want women to be silent as the law says in other words the cultural sensibilities of how we behave and what is proper is what Paul is talking about. So it would be disrespectful for a wife to speak in public. That would shame a husband, and we don't want to shame a husband. Or it would be disrespectful um, entirely for a woman to speak in a church setting where her husband is there. The next clause says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. So many people say that because of this particular clause, this whole section is only for wives. Wives should not be speaking in public or in the church because it would disrespect their husbands. So if they have a question, they need to ask their husband at home. And this could be that um, women were causing chaos and being disruptive because in the middle of the service, they turned their husband and go, yo, Bob, what does that mean? I don't understand it. What is he, you know, and if all the wives are doing that, then it would be a cacophony and would be disruptive. But there's also a thought that um, perhaps this means that if the husband is giving a prophecy, that the wife is not to be the one that's coming behind and challenging it or saying yes or no, that this is true. And so this would be a setting that women are not to be disruptive because it would dishonor their husbands. Well, what if you don't have a husband? And so what does that mean? So um, the next um, clause um, says, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. And... So as we again look back, we know that this, is, this silence, this complete silence in a church body has not been a teaching that has covered and been predominant in all places in scriptures. There are two overall um, interpretations that I'd like to hit. The first one is that it is very much um, a uh, common interpretation that you can find a lot of theologians agreeing on that this is a place where women are not to be the interpreters. And this would follow um, the First Timothy 2 passage that, that says a woman should not speak in authority, which I think Kyle's going to get to at a later time. I'm not going to go there this morning. 
But this would be an authoritative way that, that Paul is saying women should not be the one to judge the prophecies. So this does not have to do with regular speaking. It has to do with an, a, a judgment that is affirmed by the elders um, in the ecclesial structure. But the final um, interpretation that I think holds um, merit is that as Paul has been answering questions up to this point in the whole book, this is also a question that they had sent Paul, and he's repeating the question. So he's saying that this is the question um, that they have sent that they believe that women should be silent. And Paul repeats that. And the interpretation says that if you read this and go right to verse 36, you can almost hear Paul saying something a little bit in a sarcastic way, where if he repeats the women are to keep silent, then Paul would be saying, so was it from you that the word of God first went forth or has it come to you only? Um, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize the things which I write to you and are the Lord's commandment. And so there's an interpretation that says Paul quoted the question and then said, why are you thinking that you know more than I do or the Lord's commandment? And then he goes right into the next verse and he says, therefore, my brethren, my brothers and sisters in Christ, desire to, to prophesy. So I think that has some merit, and um, I would say that um, the interpretive work in this section is not conclusive, but I find it interesting and something that we need to engage with. What has happened, though, is this text has been taken and used to silence women down through history, and women have read this text and been silent. So it can be um, a situation where women hold back because they believe that this passage says women should be silent in the church or they have been taught that. Men and women coming together, looking at Scripture and saying this is what it says. And then women saying this is what it says, I'm going to hold back. Holding back is not always because somebody has taken power of you, but we do this to ourselves. And I want to speak a minute to women who silence themselves, who for some um, benefit decide that they must hold back. For instance, if Paul is saying that men and women should desire these speaking places in the congregation, then um, if what we are doing is holding back when that's not what Paul is saying, that it shouldn't be an exclusive thing, then we are um, wanting in some ways to honor God in all things. We want to be righteous in all ways, and we decide that this is what it means. We hold back for different reasons so that we're right and do what's right, but we hold back sometimes because even if we feel like God is calling us to speak or to do something or engage in certain ways, we know that if we speak up, there will be some kind of social repercussion or we will kind of pay a price for, for speaking up. There are times that God puts us in situations that we are to normally hold back. We don't say everything we think all the time, right? Because that's just not wise. But there are times when God calls us to speak, and that's 
the way we are submissive to him, but there are times that he calls us to hold back, and that is submissive to him, right? And so sometimes if God gives you a place where he wants you to speak and he asks you to give his word, it is most submissive then to speak as he has given you the message. And that's what I think God is doing with Iranian women and the church is flourishing and God is using it. So, what does this mean? Men and women join together in using their gifts for the common good in ways that are appropriate in the service so as not to be seen as improper or disorderly. That is what Paul is saying here. Jesus invited women to be seen and heard. He gave them the message of the gospel, salvation, and he wanted them to declare it to others. He pushed the men to see and hear women. Remember when um, the woman was anointing um, Jesus' feet in Simon's house, and Jesus said to Simon, Simon, do you see her? Jesus was always bringing women out so that their testimony could be heard. He did not set up an ecclesial structure, but he modeled unity for all believers. And often we have declared women to be silent, and there could be no unity because they couldn't be heard. They couldn't even bring their whole self into the conversation. Paul teaches and writes on ecclesial structure, and that also means something. So we need to speak and to fit in and to do what we need to do according to the ecclesial structure that you have submitted yourself to. God is not a God of confusion. We should continue to ask if what we interpret him to be saying creates unity as Jesus modeled it, or have we gone beyond the text and gone beyond what Paul meant that has led women to be excluded, to be left out, to not be heard, to be uninvited, to be unwelcomed. It's a wonder that Jesus uses any of us, really, right? He draws us, he cleanses us, he lets us know him, and he invites us to be part of each other in his body for the common good of the whole church. We are his ambassadors so that the church is built up and so it grows and flourishes and so that we are the testimony of who he is to the world. Paul says to all of us in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus, giving thanks through him to God our Father. So I want this message to be a message of hope for both men and women. Women, live full out. Don't silence yourself. When God gives you a place to speak, speak. And speak with the boldness that you know he has called you and equipped you. And it's the spirit working through you. Men and women together live in unity. Welcome and invite the voice of each other. So that you can be encouraged, equipped, convicted, consoled by one another. We are all starving for exhortation and consolation. Receive it from one another. And for the little boys and the little girls among us, for adolescents and for you parents, show your family the way of Christ, that boys and girls 
are also to speak the very words of God when they know him. That all are welcomed to proclaim who he is. All are welcomed to exhort one another. How many times have your children said to you, Hey, Mama, what are you doing? You're not supposed to do that. I remember our children telling me, you know, conf confronting me on something. Like even a child exhorts and convicts adults. We want to see the beauty of the body of Christ, loving, unified, honoring each other, and receiving each other. So who is up for that task? Well, we're not, but Christ is calling us to do the mission that he has given the church. And it's Christ who is in us, the hope of glory, the one who strengthens us, and the one who equips us and enables us to do his will for his glory, but also for our good. So let us pray. Father, I pray that you will minister to our hearts and that we would know how to respond to your word and that we would be obedient to you in all things. Thank you that you have called us to be together, to be the body of Christ here, to be brothers and sisters united together by your spirit. We thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to lead us in some response time. Um, so if you did get a, a bulletin on the, the back of it, it says, what is God saying? And what are you going to do about it? Um, first, just two things that caught my attention here was um, when PM said struggle, struggling with the scriptures. Um, be careful, students. So may God be inviting um, us to, is, is God inviting us to be careful students, um, struggling with the scriptures? Because um, one thing I noticed is how damaging it was when they were taken out of context and um, just to, to women, to the church, to, to men, because it teaches them how to, um, to treat women um, in an incorrect way. The second thing was, uh, when was the last time you prayed for spiritual gifts, men and women? Um, when was it? So what is God saying and, and what are you going to do about it?